Is there anything better than the smell of freshly baked brownies? Except for eating them, because that's better than just smelling them, right? But that smell alone, as soon as that smell hits you, you know that something good is close by. Just eight humble ingredients, when they are combined, create something so memorable, so sweet, and immediately identifiable. And in case you're interested, yes, I did put my favorite brownie recipe in the app notes, so you can all go home and make some brownies today, if that's uh, what you like to do, like it's what I like to do. So about a month ago, a Facebook memory popped up, and it's something that my mom posted eight years ago. And it's a picture of me uh, giving a message at my old church in Chicago. And I love my mom's caption. She said, she's preaching, not baking. And it was, I guess it was a little bit of both, really. That oven had just been donated to the church at random. And it was probably donated just so I could use it for this message. But I saw it as the perfect opportunity for an object lesson. And I put the stove on stage and decided that I would use it to illustrate the power of unity and the importance of all of us coming together. So I titled the message, Can You Smell the Love? And, and you'll see why. It is cheesy, I admit it. But I, I made some brownie batter in front of the congregation. And I talked about how the egg is packed full of potential, as is the bowl of cocoa powder or the, the, the cup of, or the teaspoon of baking powder, they're all good. But you wouldn't want to eat them on your own. If I gave you a bowl of baking powder and stuck a spoon in it and handed it to you, would you want to eat it? Of course not. Or if I gave you a cup of vegetable oil, would, would that look like something you would want to drink? No, because those ingredients were never meant to stand alone. They were meant to be incorporated, and when they come together, the magic happens when they're combined. And so the cool thing about that church, the sanctuary of that church happened to sit directly above the kitchen. And I had a friend of mine downstairs make enough brownies for the entire congregation. And as I whipped up this brownie batter in front of them, the room began to for real smell like brownies. The smell came up through the floor and I got to see the smiles on people's faces as it registered with them that something good was close by. And we all got to go downstairs after church and we all got to eat brownies together. Now I wish I can say that that is the case today for you brownie lovers out there, I'm sorry, but maybe this message will inspire you to go home, make some brownies today. But the point of all of that was that like the egg and the oil and the baking powder, each one of us is a key ingredient and we were never meant to stand alone, never alone. We're meant to be part of something great, something powerful and like the intoxicating smell of freshly baked brownies, we can become the aroma of Christ in our community and we can be immediately identifiable as his children. Like Barry said in week one of this series, our message spreads farther and spreads faster when we stand together as one. And we ought to be known for the love we have for one another. 
Jesus said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And Amy shared an image a couple weeks ago that I've been uh, thinking about ever since and thinking about its implications. It was that church sign that some of you saw when you drove in this morning, that church sign. When people see it, when you see it, what comes to your mind? What is our reputation as the church? What are we known for? I wish I could add another smaller sign to the bottom of that sign so that it would read, church never alone. Imagine what that would mean to people as they drove by and they saw the, the message, never alone. What would that mean to you? What would that mean to a single parent? What would the words never alone mean to somebody who just lost a spouse or to a lonely teenager or somebody struggling with depression and anxiety, never alone, if they knew there was a place where they could truly never be left alone again, what would that mean? And Never Alone is the title of this month's series, and it's appropriate because it's Hope Month. Never Alone is a message of hope. And this is the month that we've set aside to intentionally focus on one of the six broken places And this time around, it's the broken place of isolation. And Barry kicked us off by showing us that the path out of isolation begins with dignity. And Tim reminded us last week that practicing hospitality means seeing the dignity in every needy, lonely person who crosses our path and bringing them in to the family of God. And this week, we're talking about what happens when we put those things in practice, when we begin to heal isolation, what does the other side of it look like? What does healing look like? And to find that answer, I started in one of my favorite places, one of my favorite uh, research tools, the thesaurus. I love the thesaurus because I love the interplay of words and helping to kind of deepen the meaning of words. So I was looking for a word that meant the same as isolation. And so I typed it in and I saw words like aloneness, words like detachment or withdrawal or quarantine, quarantine, (laughs) quarantine as a synonym for isolation. So according to that, we've all been experiencing a form of isolation for the last six Months, I can see us spread out in this room and those of you who are watching in your homes, we're quarantined from one another. We're currently experiencing a form of isolation. Many of us have had health issues that have kept us from being able to see loved ones or our loved ones have been hospitalized or in a nursing home and we've been unable to get to them and visit them. Celebrations have been canceled or in some, pla- in some instances postponed due to the cautionary measures to keep the virus from spreading. Weddings, birthday parties, graduation parties, even funerals have been jeopardized by this ongoing isolation and quarantine. And many of us are feeling the loss of whatever normal looked like for us six months ago 
I know I'm feeling it. We're feeling it in big ways. We're feeling it in small ways. We miss going to concerts. We miss going to movie theaters, right? We miss real handshakes and real hugs instead of this elbow bump thing that we've all been doing. I I hope that that goes away. I don't like the elbow bump thing at all, but I'll do it. This quarantine has altered our lives and so many of us are feeling the pain of isolation. So if quarantine is isolation, and if isolation is a broken place, what does it look like when it gets healed in Jesus' name? What is on the other side of isolation? Well, another quick word search revealed opposite words like combine or integrate, like what we did with the brownie ingredients. And so that means that the opposite of isolation is integration. And the other side of aloneness, the other side of loneliness is togetherness, it's unity. And this is what the Apostle Peter was concerned with when he wrote the letter that we'll be looking at today. So if you brought a Bible or if you have your app, you can pull that up and turn to 1 Peter, and we're gonna start in the second chapter. And as you turn there, I'll tell you about Peter. He was one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. He witnessed Jesus' miracles. He was quite a character. There are lots of things written about him in the first five books of the New Testament. And there's a whole lot that I can tell you about Peter. But all you need to know for today is that Peter was an imperfect man. And he failed many times over but his life was radically transformed by the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter starting at chapter two and as we're getting there, let me say welcome and hello to those of you who are watching online. We're so glad to have you with us this morning. Um, Yeah, thanks for coming and worshiping with us. And please, would you allow me to pray for us? Father God, I just thank you again for this opportunity to be in your house together as a family. I thank you for your spirit in this place as we've gathered your spirit that makes us one. And I pray now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, your word would be amplified in this place, that my words would diminish and that your word would transform us from the inside out like only your word can. Pray in your name that you'd be glorified in this place. Amen. So in this letter, Peter is writing to new believers, to both Jews and Gentiles alike, who had recently converted to Christianity. They were new believers and they were scattered across five Roman provinces. And these Christians were experiencing the kind of isolation that comes from being a grossly misunderstood minority. To the majority, they were seen as this uh, subversive new sect of Judaism that people just didn't understand. And among the locals, they had a very unflattering reputation. They were seen as atheists because they no longer believed in the gods of the day. And because of this, many of them were thrown out of their own families. And the only family that these early Christians had were each other, their fellow believers. They were seen as incestuous because of their usage of phrases like love one another as brothers and sisters. 
That didn't make sense to the locals. The locals even thought that maybe the Christians were cannibals. Because of phrases like this, Jesus said this, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. If you had no context for those words, you, you might be tempted to think that the Christians are cannibals, you should watch out for them. You could see how this would have raised eyebrows among the locals in that day. Suffice it to say, Christians were completely misunderstood and Peter knew this as persecutions and trials began to intensify for the Christians, Peter was encouraging them to stand strong and to stand together as one. Listen to what Peter says about the kind of reputation he desires that the family of God should have. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll read starting in verse 12. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, you will, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence the ignorance of those foolish people who make accusations against you. For you are free, yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone and love the family of believers. He just makes it sound so simple. Just respect everyone. Just respect everyone and love the family of believers. So according to this, our reputation as the people of God should be that we are an honorable, respectful, loving bunch of people. So did we nail it? Is that our reputation, church? Do we have a reputation for respecting everyone and for loving each other? One of my oldest friends in Chicago would say, no, that is not our reputation. <laughs> We've been friends for 20 years. And what I've heard from her most often over these last 20 years is how she views Christians. She would say that Christians are self-obsessed, that they're self-absorbed. Christians don't care about the poor, they only care about themselves. Christians don't care about injustice, they just turn a blind eye. Christians don't care about the environment and so on and so forth. This is her frame of mind. She has a very negative frame of mind as it pertains to what we all stand for. And very sadly, I don't think that she is alone in those opinions. Today, only 36% of Americans say that they have a great deal of or, or quite a lot of confidence in the church or organized religion. And this is at an all-time low. A Gallup survey found that among the 66% of young adults who say they regularly attended church as a teenager but stopped attending for at least a year between the ages of 18 and 22, which by the way was every one of my Christian friends in high school, stopped attending church. One of the top reasons for dropping out of church was a political disagreement. A political disagreement. Have you seen any political disagreements lately? 
thank you, because I know you have. And what's truly sobering is that this chart ends in December of 2020. And everyone in this room knows, I'm sorry, in December of 2019, everyone in this room knows that 2020 is an election year. And I shudder to think at the way that that chart is gonna be trending by the end of December of this year. We're at an all-time low of faith in the church. Does this, does this bother you? Does it break your heart? We all know someone who's been hurt by the church. We all know someone who's had a falling out within the church or has had a, a fundamental disagreement with a stance this way or the other. And these divisions that we have are creating a devastating culture within the church of an intellectual kind of isolation from one another, an unfriending, a hyper-individualism, a separation. And this isolation is the antithesis of the kind of community God wants us to be. And why? Why is our unity so important? Peter H. Davids said it this way in his commentary on the book of 1 Peter. He said, individual Christians stand much less chance of surviving with their faith intact than those united in community. For Peter, salvation is not an individual event, but rather something that a person experiences as part of a community. And while it's true that they're brought into a relationship with God individually, in that very process, they are formed into another collectivity, a community belonging to God. They are now the people of God. If you are a Christ follower, if your life has been radically transformed by His grace and His forgiveness, can I tell you, you are no longer just a person. You are a people. Let that sink in. You're not just a person. You are a people. We are the people of God. And what should we, the people of God, be known for? What should our community look like? Well, Peter spells it out for us one chapter over in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll read there starting at verse 8. Here, Peter uses five powerful Greek words that capture the essence of how we are to live as examples of Christ's love in the midst of an unbelieving world. Read with me. He says, finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tenderhearted, and keep a humble attitude. He's talking about how to pursue and maintain unity. He's talking about the opposite of isolation. That phrase of one mind is the Greek word homophrone, which means of one intent, of one purpose. Consider this the finished pan of brownies, so to speak. This is what we're aiming for. When we come together, when we're integrated by the power of the Holy Spirit to form one unified, cohesive, powerful force for good. That's being of one mind. That's where we're headed. And I know that to some of us, that sounds impossible. And I sound like very much the idealist this morning. 
but would you just for a moment give yourself the freedom to imagine how this kind of unity might be possible? Because it is possible. Peter said that this is what should be our reality. He said all of you should be of one mind. This should be our reality. But with so many differences and disagreements and divisions, how can we achieve this kind of unity in today's world? Well, I believe that Peter uses the next four words to show us how to achieve that first word, how to achieve that unity. The next four words tell us how. And the first of those is sympathes. He tells us to sympathize with one another. And while we may hear the word sympathize and think, okay, that means I need to feel sorry for my neighbor. I need to feel sorry for you. Or maybe write them a sympathy card. That's how we think of sympathy today. But that doesn't entirely capture what that word means. It means whatever affects one similarly affects the other. So sympathy can look like this. I, I hurt because you're hurting. I hurt right now because I see you hurting. Can we talk about it? Or I, I weep when you weep. Or I'm, I'm angry that you feel angry. Can we talk about it? Or even I'm rejoicing, I'm celebrating because you're celebrating. Let's, let's throw a party, I'll bring the brownies. Let's celebrate together. And to me that sounds a lot like what it means to love as a family. Whatever affects one affects the other. To love as a family, Philadelphos is the next word that Peter uses to tell us how to reach that unity. Philadelphos means to love like the love between family members. Tim used that word last week, right? For those of you who heard Tim's message. Philadelphos, it sounds a lot like our word uh, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, or for these purposes, Philadelphia, the greatest cream cheese. And you can make cream cheese brownies, and you could change someone's life. Philadelphia, Philadelphos. Philadelphos means to love like family. And I'll be honest with you, no one in my family is perfect. Think about your family. Is anyone in your family just perfect? Of course not. Families are messy. Families are messy because families are filled with broken human beings. But at the end of the day, we might fight, but we will always return to love. And this is not always easy, but we're determined to keep pursuing unity because if we don't, our family will fall apart. And let me zoom in. In a church the size of ours, there are going to be some disagreements. There are bound to be many differences of opinions. But those things do not have to drive us apart because there is a love that can override our differences. The love of Christ that makes us one. And we must, thank you, pursue unity and love each other like family because if we don't love each other like family, this family, the church, will fall apart. Respect everyone and love each other like family. Respect everyone and love the family of believers.
Be tender-hearted towards one another. That's the next word that Peter uses. He tells us to be tender-hearted and don't, don't get that word confused with something soft or, or weak. Tender-hearted almost sounds like a benign or sweet. It's actually a powerful word. It means to, to feel a deep sense of mercy or compassion that comes from your guts. It's what a first responder feels when they will run into the face of danger, laying down their own lives, putting themselves at risk for the sake of helping someone in need. That is tender-hearted. That's not a wimpy word. That's a brave word. And that's the kind of love that Peter is telling us to have for one another, to be tender-hearted. That that comes from our guts. And this is the how. This is how we achieve that unity. When we sympathize with one another, when we love each other like family, and when we live with a gut level compassion for one another, when we do these things, we're already well on the pathway to true unity. But the fifth word that he uses, the last word he uses in, in verse eight, to me, everything else hinges on this one word. You can't have the other things without humility. He uses the Greek word tapinephron, which means humble-minded or humble in spirit. Because you can't sympathize with somebody, you can't feel what they're feeling without a measure of humility. And you can't love someone like family unless you possess a humble heart. And you for sure can't love somebody with gut-level compassion if you aren't willing to lay your life down in self-giving love and be humble. Humility looks like this. Peter said in verse nine, don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. This is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. Search for peace and work to maintain it. Again, these are strong words. Peter is not making a suggestion. He's telling us literally to strive for peace, to chase after it until we've grabbed a hold of it. And when we do, we work to maintain it. We work to keep it going. The verb tense that Peter uses here is commanding. It's not passive. He's saying, make this happen. Don't just try. Begin to do this now. There's an urgency to these words. And why? Why is it so urgent that we live like this? Because if we don't, when we don't actively pursue unity, we fall apart and our reputation tanks. I believe there is a direct correlation between the divisions and the factions within the body of Christ and the all-time low that we are facing today. Just like it was with the early Christians, if we don't stand together, our message of hope won't be heard. And we are the ones with the message of life, the message of salvation through Christ and Christ alone the message that will transform lives and heal broken places. We have that, but we're so divided. They're not 
hearing us? Does this break your heart? Our unity in Christ is the bright light that this world desperately needs. And if you possess that light and I possess that light and we bring our lights together, we shine so brightly that isolation has nowhere to hide. Loneliness and isolation like to hide in dark places. But when we together bring the love of Jesus to those dark places, we bring healing. And in this, we can be of one purpose. We can be of one mind, even though we disagree on things. We can still be of one intent of bringing the love of God to the dark places of this world and healing isolation. Our pursuit of unity will heal isolation and bring about the kind of reputation that God had in mind for his church all along. And I know this because Jesus showed us that this was his heart when he prayed for all of us right before he went to the cross. In John chapter 17, we see Jesus praying and he's praying with you and me in mind. He says in verse 21, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and as I am in you, and may they be in us, so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one, as we are one. Did you see that? We already have what we need to achieve this unity. He gave us his glory so that we may be one. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Without unity, the world will not believe and the world will not know him. Jesus prayed that we would experience such perfect unity so that the world will know him. This is our reputation. When people think about the church, when they see that yellow sign, they should know that something good is close by. And just like the smell of warm brownies, we can be that enticing aroma of Jesus that's immediately identifiable. Those are Christians. Those are Christians. That Grace Church would be known as a people, a people who love and seek after those who are hurting and isolated. That we would see the dignity in every lonely, isolated person and we would love them like family. This is the heart of the Savior for us, that we would be made one. It's my passion. And because of that, this picture, is one of my most prized possessions. My daughter drew this picture when she was in the sixth grade and we were sitting in church together listening to a message a lot like this one about the family of God coming together as one. And this is how my daughter takes notes. She drew God whose face has never been seen with human eyes and she drew his head just outside the frame. How did she know that? She was in sixth grade. And God looks at Jesus and he says, what are you making, Jesus? What are you making there? And the stick, the stick figure bearded Jesus. He looks up at his father and he says, I'm making the Christians 
one. It's like he's taking us from this place where we have been disassembled and unorganized, and he is fitting us and forming us into one powerful, cohesive force for good, for his name. He's building his church. And God looks admiringly at what Jesus is building, how he's bringing his children together. And he just says, cool. (laughs) Our message of hope spreads farther and our message of salvation spreads faster when we stand together as one. This was Jesus' prayer for all of us. Church, let's be known for this. Let's be known for healing what he healed and for loving who he loved, for standing together for what he stood for and for being one as Christ and the Father are one.